Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. All right, welcome back to another edition of Coffee and Conservation. I am Beth Baker, your host, and today on the show we have Dr. TJ Bradford. He is the lead precision egg instructor in the Department of Plant Soil Science here at Mississippi State University. He also received his PhD from the Department of Human Sciences here at Mississippi State. So welcome, TJ. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be able to join you. Yes, thank you. Um, it is great to have you on the show. And this episode, in fact, we are kind of diving into your farming background as well as your early career. So I didn't even mention that in the biography, but um, <laughs> you, in fact, have a farming background as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that early life and growing up on a family farm and kind of the journey you took before you even you know, took the academic path, I would say. Yeah, so um, so we have a family farm. Uh, it's in the Mississippi Delta, small town, um, Isola, Mississippi. So it's right off of Highway 49 coming out of Belzona. So if you blink, you literally will miss it. Um, so we've been, I'm a fifth generation farmer, and we have been farming since the late 1870s. And it's been in our family for that long. And uh, it started off as traditional uh, corn, cotton, soybean operation. And then when in the late, I think it was the late 80s, the early 90s, that's when we made the shift to produce. And so now we, uh, we grow exclusively all produce. Uh, we're preferred growers for Walmart. Uh, one of our main crops are watermelon that we sell to Walmart. And so that's, that's always exciting to to plant watermelons and to grow watermelons and things of that nature. But we've always done um, peas and butter beans. And so uh, that's kind of our, our own personal staple. And so, um, so there at the home base is about 40 acres. And then there's some additional land that we managed in Yazoo County. And so um, that's another 300 acres. And so it's, it's a pretty, pretty vast operation. So, um, I love farming. I, I think that if, if I could do anything else, it would probably either play golf for a living or farm. So, um, and since I'm not going to be on the PGA tour anytime soon, then I think, uh, I think farming is, is just what I enjoy and plants and, and all that good stuff. So, um, I kind of got started. My dad was a high school ag teacher and he, you know, we farmed as well. And so it was either, in his ag classroom or on the farm. And it just kind of happened naturally for me. So, um, but it was, I, I don't think I know any other way of life. <laughs> yeah, that is really, that's really interesting. First of all, that's um, a special part of the country. If, if our mm -hmm. listeners are not from Mississippi or have not been to um, the Delta, when I um, moved down here from Minnesota, actually, um, my dissertation research took place in the Delta right outside of Belzona, which I of course called Belzoni like the first time, <laughs> the first time we went there. So yeah. I, I've been to that neck of the woods. Uh, yeah. A number of times. 
how did the transition from larger commodity crops to produce, how did that come about? I, it, it happened somewhat naturally. Um, it was just, you know, we traditionally um, just grew those crops. I mean, it was the equipment and the machinery was there, um, handed down and just what we worked on. But we always had a, um, a small vegetable garden. There was always a small vegetable garden. Um, and when I say small, I'm, I'm saying five, six acres type of small um, for us. And it was just kind of kind of understood like we just we're gonna have our vegetables and I think once my dad really started I get he's the he was the visionary behind it and he just it seemed like it happened overnight just one day it just went all to produce and so I remember I think I was yeah I was second grade so I was about seven years old that's the last time I remember growing cotton um, I remember coming home from school and my dad was already on the picker and we had these big metal trailers that you would dump the cotton in. And I remember running out of the car, jumping on the cotton trailer and my brothers and I jumping in. Um, but I remember specifically, I was second grade and that's the last year that I remember growing cotton. And since then it's been, it's been full force produce, full straight ahead, full steam ahead. Yeah, that, that is, um, it's interesting and, and somewhat incredible. I know um, five acres, you say that, you know, as your garden, that is a really right. big garden. Like that's some <laughs> small growers whole farm. Yeah. So managing 40 acres of produce is not a small feat. No, it's, it's not. It's, uh, it's very, it's very time consuming. It's very uh, meticulous because, you know, when we're growing vegetables, you're thinking you're harvesting a crop essentially in its immature state and so it's delicate and so you think of quality uh, you think of how much water vegetables have and so the harvesting has to look different than uh, these other crops and there's a lot of finesse when it comes to when it comes to growing vegetables and so I think that fits right in along with kind of my dad the visionary because he's a very meticulous person I mean extremely meticulous so meticulous that when we grow watermelons and they start vining we actually walk through the entire 40 acres to turn the vines a certain way direction so when they grow they bunch all together I thought he was insane but when it was time to harvest it actually worked like a charm because you knew where all the watermelons were bunched up together and so it makes it easier for equipment to turn around to get in and out so um but it's, it's actually, uh, growing produce is, is so much fun. It's so much fun. Um, most people, they, they kind of get discouraged with growing produce because of the amount of time and energy it takes, but it's so rewarding. I mean, it's just, uh, that's why I like, I grow things here at my house in my backyard that I don't even eat just because I like to grow them and I like to, you know, uh, play with them and try to finesse them and all those type of things. So for me, it's just a lot of fun. Um, my wife thinks I'm insane, but <laughs> I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And I can only imagine growing up on the farm too, that you had almost even like subconscious learning happening the whole time you were growing up to have a green thumb. Now, um, I didn't grow up around agriculture and I can say that I have somewhat of a black thumb. 
Like, <laughs> I have no <laughs> intuition when it comes to growing things. And at the same time, I'm somewhat analytical like your dad, where I can immediately envision the complexity of a farm that large growing different produce. Um, do, do y'all try to grow like all three growing seasons of a produce farm? Like, No, we... We try to mainly grow for the summer crops um, and the watermelon specifically, we try to tailor, we try to hit the market after the 4th of July because the 4th of July market, pre-4th of July market is always flooded with watermelon. And in some people's mind, you just, they think, well, I'm not gonna buy watermelon after the 4th of July, but really, if you, somebody gives you a watermelon in December, you're going to eat it just because watermelon is it's just it's lovely. Like watermelon is so great. But um, we typically just uh, grow for the uh, spring and summer and try to stretch out in the fall as much as we can. And then in the winter, uh, we'll plant a, a, a winter cover crop, winter wheat or something like that, just to make sure we are, you know, stabilizing the soil, making sure we're not leaving that soil bare uh, over those winter months. Um, so it's, it's just kind of the market that we hit because it, it was like that in, initially because my mom and dad were both teachers. And so during those summer months, they were off. So we had more time to put into the summer and then the winter and the fall when things were going on with school, we just wanted to make sure the, uh, the ground was covered. That's an interesting point there about stabilizing the soil and uh, cover crops. <laughs> as it turns out, you were in fact a soil scientist for NRCS as well in your yes. in a or different lifetime. I'm sure it feels like. <laughs> feels, like for, feels like forever ago. <laughs> okay, so what are some of the more memorable moments you have of working with landowners as a soil scientist? So I, I got my start with NRCS uh, when I was 16 as a student and I worked the one summer in Brandon, Mississippi. And I was thinking, they pay people to do this type of stuff? Like, this is great. Like, I get to go out to help landowners, other farmers, ranchers, you know, to, to kind of help with these conservation practices. Because I think farmers in general, they're naturally conservationists. And so it's just like having an, an extended arm to go, I call it having fun because I think those type of things are fun. And so the most memorable thing that I can remember, I have, a, I have so many stories. I, uh, as I moved through high school and got through community college, I accepted a detail in Pennsylvania. I was stationed in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And me being from small Isola, Mississippi, um, having the farm there. I, I go up there, it's my first time traveling by myself, living by myself. And of course I have a, some people say I have a heavy Southern accent. And I go up there to Pennsylvania, the first week that I'm up there helping landowners, I have no idea what anybody is saying. The accents were so heavy and so different it almost felt like I was in another country almost. And I remember specifically meeting with this one farmer and I was with another district, district conservationist and they were having a conversation. They were having a complete conversation and I was just sitting on the side nodding, nodding and the landowner would look at me and he'll say something now and nod and I'll say, yes, sir, yes, sir, kind of nod. And then we get back in the truck and uh, the person that I was with said, did you understand that? And I said, not a word, not a word. And <laughs> it was just, 
it was so interesting, but everybody still had the same goal. Um, conservation, um, implementing environmental friendly practices. And it was, it seemed like that was always the common goal. And regardless of where I was uh, geographically, it's kind of like, we still have the same goal in the end uh, is to, to conserve, uh, conserve these resources and make sure we're doing the absolute best that we can um, for future generations. Yeah, I feel like that is one of the reasons why it's so great to work with landowners too. You know, you never, you never regret being on a farm, learning about someone's operation, mm -hmm. trying to help them with the challenges that they have. Um, related to the accents though, I feel that on so many <laughs> levels. My husband is from Mississippi. And so when mm -hmm. we were first courting each other and being with each other's families, I would be like, what? What is, what are they saying? And vice versa, when we go to Minnesota, he'd be like, I have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> uh, it seems like it wouldn't be a barrier, but sometimes it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But after, after being around um, in Pennsylvania for so, uh, for so long that I had, I had a, an opportunity to go to Lancaster County and uh, actually observe some Amish farms and the accent there was still it was it was still different but um it was it was a great experience for me to kind of see how you know agronomy is kind of regionalized so to speak and even though we grow different crops and we do different things um we still have the the same like the same standard is to you know conservation and manage things make sure they're managed efficiently and and to not be wasteful and so uh, it was real cool to see. So, you know, being in different places, it was like, man, you know, the world is still kind of small because we still have the same goals. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in couching conservation in that way, it's just so intuitive for everyone in terms of, you know, even with your own family budgets and resources, you don't want to mm -hmm. be wasteful. You want to use resources efficiently and stretch them as far as you can too. Uh, right. In, in respects to the production system. Um, that doesn't mean that conservation comes without challenges. So did you particularly encounter any memorable challenges as you were working as a soil scientist? Um, there were, so I, I often back in 2009, I believe, 2010, um, again, it seems like forever ago, I was stationed in uh, Wyoming. And so I was in Saratoga, Wyoming, a small community, maybe 12, 1600 people. Everybody knows everybody, but the land out west is so vast and you have these large parcels of land where, you know, one uh, landowner can own, you know, four or five sections of land. And one of the unique challenges um, as a soil scientist out there that we were mapping soils is we, there was a, a trust factor that felt like it was, um, that it was never fully there between uh, me myself as a governmental employee at the time and the landowner. And I, I would ask uh, some of my fellow employees who were from the area and um, I would say, I was asked, do you feel weird, you know, going to some of these landowners? Do you feel weird approaching them? Because I feel like I'm a people's person. I love people. I love interacting with people, talking with people, joking with people. And my wife says, I never meet a stranger. Like we would, would be in Kroger and she was like, oh, where'd you know that person from? And I was like, that's my first time ever meeting them. It's my first time ever seeing them. And she was like, you can just talk to anybody. I'm like, I don't know. I just like people. And, but there was a real, there was this weird vibes. And so 
um, when I was talking with some of the, you know, my former coworkers, they would say, well, it's just kind of, they, people, some of these people don't really trust what we're doing. Um, and we would, you know, mapping soils, we had the GPS systems, you know, a lot of those things, uh, taking photographs, you know, classifying the soil. And they just said, they just, they, it's nothing bad about the people. It's just, they don't necessarily trust, uh, um, I guess, government intrusion kind of on their farm. They understand what we're trying to do, but they don't necessarily um, want to feel that, you know, they're being taken advantage of or anything like that. And so it was, it was kind of interesting because again, as a soil scientist, there's a little twist from being a soil conservationist is like, we are really trying to study the soils, uh, trying to classify it, break it down in the land capability classes for everybody for what they see on web soil survey. And um, there are a lot of areas that we tried to map that we couldn't because we couldn't get landowner permission. Um, and I don't think it was anything personal. It was just, um, I think historically there were some strained relationships with um, certain governmental entities and it just put a bad taste in some people's mouths. And so I think that was one of the most unique challenges is because, um, you know, you, you have a, a, a common goal as to, let's say, mapping and classifying soils, um, but everybody may not, um, uh, they may not essentially want that information uh, conducted on their farm, and which I totally respect. I, I totally respect that. And so I just think that, you know, that, that relationship was, it was unique and it, it made me feel a little weird at times because uh, I never experienced that, um, you know, growing up on my farm or anything like that. So, uh, so that was kind of unique and kind of weird. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if any portion of that was if the, the employees were from a community, like outside the community. Cause you know, when I think about, you know, strong relationships more local to us when, when I'm working in the Delta or in other counties around here, it seems like most people know the person mm. who's in that soil conservationist role or um, something of that matter. I guess the scientists probably more often would be from outside the community because their scientists probably trained somewhere else and then coming in. Right, right. And I was in that situation uh, myself and uh, maybe six or seven other coworkers, we were on detail from all the other places. And a lot of times, you know, these people, you know, they, they would see us in town. They didn't know us and, you know, we were all there together. But um, and it was very interesting how uh, a coworker of mine, um, he was kind of the senior soil scientist there. He had grown up in Nebraska and he'd been there in Wyoming since he was six years old. And he said, sometimes I still feel like an outsider. And I was thinking, well, I have no shot then. <laughs> but, um, uh, but it was, you know, my, my time in Wyoming, it was, it was such a special time. I mean, the people there, they were great. I mean, they, they welcomed me in their town with open arms. And uh, I got a chance to play golf. And it was beautiful. And I, I would love to go back any chance that I could get. Just don't understand how the golf and the agriculture connect for you. I'm just. <laughs> I'm, it's gonna it's gonna take me a minute to just like add that as another element of your dynamic personality. <laughs> Listen, so the the golf piece it was just so I when my my master's research was actually um, in vegetative establishment under the turf department, 
And so me coming from an ag row crop background, grass was always the enemy. And so it's like, you see grass, you spray it. And that was it. But having, a, uh, when working on a master's in agronomy and actually working on research in roadside, you know, vegetation, you know, I took a, it took a little turn as, okay, well, I'm not thinking about how to kill grass. I'm thinking about how to grow it, how to establish it. And you meet so many people in the turf industry, so many golf courses and um, started playing golf. And I was like, this is, first I thought it was boring, but I was like, this is really, really hard. And me, I'm obsessive with things and trying to be, you know, perfect almost. So I was like, I have to try this. And so I've been hooked on golf ever since. I, I literally cannot stop. Like I will play. And if I hadn't played in a couple months, I'd come home and be like, you know what? I quit. I'm retiring. I'm never playing golf again. And my wife, she's like, you said that last time. And then here I go again, I'm trying again. So it's one of those things that you can't, call, can't conquer, but it's so much fun trying to. And you just have more of an appreciation for the process for me. So, um, so yeah, I, I love golf. I mean, it is, it's, a, it's a ridiculous hobby, but I love it. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see that, um, that self-competition a little bit to try to perfect the game. You yeah, because, I mean, it's like there's, there's no one else you're competing with but yourself. So it's like if you hit a bad shot, guess what? It's nobody's fault but yours. You can't blame any teammates. You can't blame any coaches. Like, <laughs> you got to deal with it. It's terrible. <laughs> um, when you're talking about being in the turf, turf program or, you know, trying to establish those grasses, at what moment before, at what moment did you decide to come back to school? Um, how did that? Yeah. Tell me about so, that transition. So I had, um, I've always, well, my parents have always been a proponent of education, but they were like, you know, go until you can't go anymore. And so, um, my mom has a doctorate degree, um, in education and my dad has a doctorate degree in theology. And so it was kind of, for me, I was like, I don't think that I necessarily want to go to school that long. Um, but they, they always challenged and pushed me and they would always say, hey, when you get into a certain lane in life, it's a lot easier to stay in that lane and finish than to jump out of that lane and try to jump back in. And so um, when I finished my master's, I was on my way back to Florida because that's where I was before I accepted my detail to Wyoming. And so I was on my way back to Florida and, um, I was thinking, and my wife and I were engaged at the time, and we were looking for places to live in Florida. And I just told her, I was like, I, I wonder if I should get a PhD. And I was thinking, no, that's just a, it's a bad dream. It's a, you know, something that I ate. I shouldn't have, I should never think about getting a PhD. And I had, there was a, there was a American Society of Agronomy conference in Cincinnati that year. And so went to the conference and I was talking and she was like, you know what? you're probably going to get some offers for a PhD after you present. And I'm thinking tough luck because I'm not going like I'm done with school. And um, so lo and behold, I got a few offers and it just so happened. I got a chance to, to stay here at Mississippi state for, uh, for a PhD and it just worked out. But after my master's, I was so done with school. I was just completely done with it. But um, you know, my, parents they encouraged me and um my wife you know she my, was my fiance at the time she was just like hey just don't be just be open to it just be open 
and and so now we're here. <laughs> yes. You know, I feel like most people's lives are kind of like a series of unplanned or the opposite of the planned right. kind of coincidental moments, you know? Right. right. I agree because there were, there were things that I said growing up that I would never do. And one of them was, is that I would never teach and I had got a bad taste in my mouth from farming. And I said, I would never farm. And here I am teaching and farming. So. Yep. You're just destined, destined <laughs> right. to be here. Well, don't give away too much because I know that for your PhD, you did kind of switch tracks and that's what we're going to talk about on the next episode. So thank you for joining us and all of our listeners catch us back on the next episode with Dr. Bradford. Thank you. Thank you. As always, you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show. And we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor, the Mississippi Natural Resources Conservation Service for their support of this podcast. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu.